If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we're going to be in verses 34 through 40. I know we just started a new series in Jeremiah, but for this particular Sunday, as we celebrate the blessings of mothers, we're going to step outside of that series and focus on what I'm calling the greatest command of parenting. My wife Jenna and I are, are, are blessed to be raising three kiddos that have uh, rocked our world. Uh, Piper, our oldest, is seven years old and is quickly growing into a striking young lady uh, inside and out. Sully is next at five years old and he's one of the bravest and most kind-hearted boys you'd ever know. And then there's Tucker, uh, who at three years old is our crazy man uh, who keeps all of us entertained um, and in prayer. So, um, so Jen and I are in the midst and the thick of this parenting world. We get it. And what I'm going to share with you today is what I believe God commands in his word. It's not what Jen and I carry out uh, every single moment of every single day. Know that time and time again, we have to repent before the Lord and before our children for the sin this whole parenting thing reveals in our own hearts. Now, some of you hear that we're emphasizing parenting this morning and various thoughts have already run through your mind. For some, it's the temptation to believe this sermon is coming to you way past when you ever needed it. Your kids are grown and have kids of their own. For others, uh, the memory of your own childhood is painful. Whether it was constant criticism, lack of any affection, a broken home, abandonment, or un even unimaginable abuse, the subject of parenting is something that conjures up nothing but feelings of hurt and regret. And for still others, you long to be parents, but for reasons not yet revealed to you, that hasn't come about, and this touches a nerve that is raw and real. All of these groups and so many others are represented within the hundreds or more who will listen to this message. And my prayer for each of you is that the God who has led you to view this message in this moment in your life, that he would apply it exactly as you need. Moreover, I would remind you that, uh, of two things. First, what you've been given in Jesus Christ is far greater than any father, mother, son, or daughter, which is why Jesus speaks a few chapters before this of those who, who would leave brothers and sisters, fathers or mothers or children, all for the sake of him who is of infinite greater worth. And second, if you're in Christ, you're part of a larger body of faith that offers you mothers and fathers and children closer than any blood relation could be because it's spiritual and eternal. So if you're a believer this morning, the hurt of this topic might be real, but the riches and the relationships you have in Jesus are more real, even when it doesn't feel that way. So we can approach this topic and I hope that we will approach this topic with anticipation and gratitude for the standing and the fellowship we have in our Savior. So with that being said, let me read our passage this morning. This is Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Bless the preaching of it. Bless the hearing of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This test of Jesus came uh, toward the end of a series of engagements that Jesus had with various uh, religious leaders of the time. And I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, discussing the nature of this test, but it seems that the lawyer was trying to get Jesus to appear to downplay some parts of the law by elevating others. But whatever the case, Jesus knew the man's intent and answered in no uncertain terms by quoting two Old Testament commands. Both commands, the first from Deuteronomy 6, 5, and the second from Leviticus 19, 18, were well known and highly esteemed among the Jews. So it wouldn't have been surprising that Jesus uh, picked these. Now, I do want to make uh, some general observations of the two, com two commands together before we look at each commandment specifically. First, recognize the significance of Jesus not answering with a commandment that involved various sacrifices or religious rituals. That's not to say that such practices were not important, but do recognize that the emphasis was not on works done by our hands, but instead on the dispositions of our hearts. Love was the primary focus, not obedience, because love is a deeper interest than obedience when it comes to the law. It's more fundamental to the commandments. Why? Because we can obey without love, but we can't love without obeying. And then second, see that the lawyer asked for the great commandment, singular, one commandment, but Jesus gave him two in response. By doing that, he wanted to so closely link the two commands in our minds that it would be impossible to think of one without the other. Why? Because it's impossible to obey one without obeying the other. You can't truly love God without then expressing that love of God by loving others. First John four makes this very clear. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. But it's just as true the other way around. You can't truly love your neighbor unless you love God. And I get, I get that that seems a bit over the top because all of us know men and women who are so caring and so giving to those around them, but they have no interest in the things of God whatsoever. How can it be that they aren't truly loving those around them? Because God is the source of the love he commands. Remember, God is love and apart from him, there is no love, at least not the kind he's speaking of in these commandments. This type of love can only proceed from a heart that first loves God, which is why the Ten Commandments start with four God-directed commandments and then only then proceed to six neighbor-directed commandments. And so Jesus wants to ensure that no one can separate these two from each other because they are inextricably linked. So having those points in mind, let's narrow our focus now to each commandment that Jesus identified. Verse 37 says, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, number one on your notes, don't miss this. This is a commanded love. 
which means that it's more than some emotional experience you or I passively fall into. Does it involve emotions? Yes, absolutely, but not only emotions. Being something God commands, it also involves, uh, involves our will, our want to. It's something we must actively decide to obey. And it's this type of love that sometimes creates internal strife within our hearts because our hearts are still plagued by the influence of sin. Just consider the command to love your enemies. There will be times when you have to override and even wrestle with your initial and even persistent emotions because while this love involves emotions, it goes beyond them as well. And this is where we begin to see that what is often labeled as love by the world around us is not of the same caliber or character as the love commanded by God. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The implied answer is yes, but of course God has called us to go further and to love even those who don't love us. Because in truth, that's exactly what he did with us. This is a commanded love. It's also number two, a faith-filled love. In other words, it's a love based on faith in the God who commands it. In Deuteronomy 6, the command reads, you shall, leave, you, you shall love Yahweh, your God, meaning this isn't an abstract love of whatever deity any person wants to identify with. It's a command to love this singular God who has revealed himself to and through the people of Israel in time and space and who has finally and fully revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You shall love this God, the only God, Loving Allah or loving the great spirit or loving some general providential being in the sky, this will not do. To fulfill this command, one must love the only and true God revealed in the scriptures and in the gospel. And a person will only love what he believes is true, meaning that love is an outworking of faith. You cannot love God for who he is if you don't believe he is who he says he is. Saying you believe in the God of this part of scripture, but not in the God of that part of scripture means that you don't love the God of any part of scripture. We are called to love God as he has revealed himself to be. And we can only do that if we actually believe who he's revealed himself to be. Third, this is a whole person love. When the Lord commands that we should love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, he's not dissecting the, the human person into various parts that, that we must identify and examine as if a person would say, okay, I know I'm loving God with my heart, but my mind is kind of 50-50. No, it means this love must be whole person love. It must encompass the entirety of the person, the inner person and the outer person, the physical body, our minds, our motives, our emotions, our allegiances, all of it. Everything is to be directed by God to God and for God. He is to be the focus of our energy and exertion, the goal of our motives and intentions, the aim of our affections and adoration. Nothing in our lives is to be separated from our concern that he is pleased and he is magnified. 
Whether our thoughts, our reactions, our relationships, our affections, our words, our actions, our passions, our attitudes, our plans, our purposes, our possessions, our past, our present, our future, all of it, all of it is to be directed by him, to him, and for him. This is what whole person love of God means. So that Paul can later write about it this way. So whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And finally, this is an undivided love. Three times the word all is emphasized in the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. One cannot love God and something else. The Lord is not interested in 99% of your devotion because whatever gets the other 1% isn't as worthy of it as he is. Yet to give him only a portion of your love is to say otherwise. But surely with God, we must consider what or who could be more worthy of our loyal affection than him. Ponder the, the greatest, the most beautiful the grandest, the purest, the most sublime of all of creation. And as one recent song put it, the things of earth stand next to him like a candle to the sun. Brothers and sisters, to say that we love God and, that is to say that we don't love God rightly. Because in giving him part of my heart, giving God part of my heart and part of my heart to something else is to say that that something else is more worthy of that part of my heart than he is. And in that, I am dead wrong. Because even if I don't intend to say that, that's exactly what I'm saying. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, the one that must be manifest in our obedience to every other command or our obedience falls short of God's gloriously perfect standard. It's not enough to, lie, to not lie. Do you tell the truth because your heart is so captivated by Jesus who is himself the truth that you flee from the temptation of deceitfulness? It's not enough to give to the poor or provide for the needy. Do you do it because you can't get over the fact that he who is infinitely rich became poor so that you who are poor could become infinitely rich in him? It's not enough to listen to this sermon or read the scriptures or pray every morning. Do you do these things because your heart aches with anticipation to commune with God and to amplify the majesty and the grandeur of the one your heart can't wait to hear from and exalt on high? I dare say that on any given day, there are times all of us, all of us must answer no to these questions. But this is the standard we're held to. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Taking this from Leviticus 19, 18, Jesus communicates that any vertical love we have for God will in turn spread horizontally to other people. Once more, it's commanded and thus it's not dependent on how we feel about any other person. It's not if you like this person or are related to this person or look like this person or vote like this person or believe like this person or whatever else like this person, then love him. No, 
It's a love that's qualified by this simple question. Is he or she your neighbor? I.e., is he or she a fellow human being? If so, you and I are commanded to love him or her as we love ourselves. This is what Jesus was getting at through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even your enemy as a fellow human being who's in need, that one is your neighbor also. And if that's the case, then who would not count as your neighbor? Now, of course, the love we give to our neighbor is not the same type of love we give give to God. Our, Our ultimate loyalty and affection doesn't reside with any fellow man or woman, but with God. But Jesus is very clear that love for neighbor is a preeminent concern of God's kingdom. So what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, first, it does not mean that you need to learn to love yourself before loving your neighbor. The scriptures are quite clear that no one, absolutely no human being needs to learn to love himself. We're all perfectly at home doing that. Sin at its very core is the love of self to the exclusion of everyone else, including God. So let's not even go down that road of thinking. Instead, it's command to take the same care and concern we naturally have for ourselves and to apply it to those around us. Think about how you care for yourself. When you're hungry, you feed yourself. When you're weary, you rest. When you're scared, you protect yourself. And on and on and on it goes. These things are natural to us. We are for our good. And in the same way, this commandment says, be also for the good of your neighbor. This is the definition of love for one's neighbor, to be for the meeting of their needs, to be committed to their well-being, even at a cost to yourself. It's not self-focused, it's other-focused. Be for the good of the other and provide for his needs. Jesus goes on to say that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, meaning nothing else in all of the scriptures can be understood or obeyed apart from these two commandments. Without these two commandments, our faith is barren, unproductive, and empty. But Jesus has given us this insight to tell us that it was never intended to be that way and it doesn't have to be that way. Now I can imagine that by this moment, someone, not you, someone else, someone else is saying something along the lines of this. I thought this was going to be a sermon on parenting. When are we going to get to the stuff about parenting? But here's the thing. I've been talking about parenting this whole time. Yet I've been intentional to begin this way because I want to highlight highlight a disconnect that's symptomatic of where we've come to treat the Bible as a reference book rather than as God's self-revelation through which he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. If I treat the Bible as a reference book, I will be sorely disappointed with how much it actually talks about parenting. But if I understand that God has given his word in order to reveal himself to us and that in knowing him, I have all I need for life and godliness, including parenting, then my perspective changes. No longer is my focus on finding 10 ways to change my child or four simple tips to better communicate with my teenager. No, instead it's striving to know and love God more. Because what scripture reveals to us is that tips and techniques are not the heart of the matter. The heart is the heart of the matter. 
And don't get me wrong, tips and techniques are great and we ought to desire them. But remember, God's not interested in heartless compliance and we shouldn't be either. As we've seen, love first for God and then for neighbor is central to all of this, including the topic of parenting. And if we divorce these commands from what we assume are the practical, non-religious parts of our lives, like raising children, then we've missed the boat on understanding how essential they are to everything. Because these two commandments are not limited in their scope. They're not just the two great commands for you as a Christian. They're the two great commands for you as a parent as well. My greatest need and responsibility as a parent is to love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind. And as I do that or don't do that, my parenting of my children will be impacted one way or another. Your parenting of your children will be impacted. So let me ask you, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Is he whom you are most devoted to? Do you purposefully set out each day to make much of him? Or do you hardly think of him? Do you take into account his will, his honor, and his wisdom when it comes to the hundreds of decisions you make on a daily basis? Or is all that you think about what you think, what you want, or what you feel? Is that all you're about? Because within the world of parenting, there are innumerable other options for your heart to give itself to. For instance, love others' opinions of you as a good parent, and you'll do whatever it takes to secure their approval. You'll demand your son support your efforts by obeying you, and you will punish him if he steps out of line. And all the while, you'll be more, you'll be doing all of this more for your reputation than for the reputation of the God who's given you that son. Love the dream of a successful young adult child, however you define success, and you'll drive your daughter relentlessly and be crushed when she doesn't make the grades or make the cut. And all the while, you'll be shaping her to find her identity in, in her own achievement instead of Christ's achievement, achievement on her behalf. Love the peace and order of a well-behaved child, and you'll be consumed with preserving those things. And you'll be satisfied with your child's outward temperament while remaining indifferent to his inward transgression. Do you see what I'm, I'm saying here? Are, they, are these things not practical enough for us anymore? Have we lost the ability to see that our hearts, our own hearts are of paramount importance when it comes to parenting? Brothers and sisters, you cannot seek the things of God for your children if you're not seeking the things of God for yourself. And let me go one step further. You cannot love your child as you ought to unless you love your God as you ought to. How could that be? How is that true? Because your child isn't just your child. He's your neighbor also. She's your neighbor also. They're your neighbors also. And if you can't fulfill the second great commandment apart from fulfilling the first, then you can't love your child in a way that honors the Lord without first loving the Lord in a way that honors him. 
What your child needs most from you is for you to love the Lord more than you love your child. Because only then will you love your child in a way that accounts for his eternal need and pursues his eternal good. When I have before me these two great commandments, then I'm clear about my child's greatest need and about my greatest aim. First, to love the Lord with whole person devotion is my child's greatest need. The Bible is clear. Every human being is born with an inner person sinfully bent away from the things of God. Every child is naturally self-centered, self-assured, self-loving, and self-directed. This is why they snatch toys from each other, push and hit each other, lie to, to others, pitch fits or pout over not getting their way, stomp their feet, slam doors, ignore direction, roll their eyes, huff and puff, don't clean their rooms, and do any number of other things for which we discipline them. All of these things spring forth from a heart that loves self above God. And just because they're young doesn't mean the Lord doesn't count these things against them. There's no age after which dishonoring parents is sinful, but before which it's innocent self-expression. Stomping feet at the age of six is just as worthy of God's eternal condemnation as slamming doors at 16. And slamming doors at 16 is just as worthy of God's eternal condemnation as slothful laziness at 26, 36, 46, and on and on and on. And I get it. These things are almost anathema to say in this day and age, but it's also biblical. We wink at young children's disobedience because we've forgotten how dreadfully much God hates sin. We excuse our teenagers' disrespectful attitudes as the quote-unquote norm for adolescence because we've lost the truth that God burns with holy anger towards such iniquity. And we enable our adult children to live in complete disregard of their responsibility before God because we really believe the problem isn't so deep as a heart in rebellion against him. We must recover the awareness that these two great commands are not just directed to us, but to our children as well. And only then will we see in them our children's greatest need. So the two great commands come together to reveal the greatest need of my child. And they also come together to reveal my greatest aim as a parent. And this will be reflected in two ways, the, the goal of parenting and the approach to parenting. In light of these two great commands, my goal as a parent will be different. My leading concern will be that they know and love the Lord. It won't be what other people think of me as a parent. It won't be that my child makes the grades, gets the diploma, makes the team, gets married, gets the job, or never faces adversity. These things are good and right, but they can't be ultimate. They can't be what I wake up thinking about because that place of motivation, that place of motivation in this parent's heart is already occupied. It must already be occupied by my greatest desire for my child that he or she comes to know and love the Lord. And if so, how I go about parenting is also transformed. I will approach parenting with a greater dependence on God because I realize only the Lord can bring about any lasting change in my child. So the priority of God's word of prayer, of the local church, these things will be preeminent because I know they are the means through which God works to affect that change that I, I desire. 
It's one thing to say you desire God's heart-changing work in your child, but does your daily and weekly schedule reflect that? If not, stop kidding yourself. This also means I'll remember that God holds me responsible for, uh, it'll remind me, it will help me to remember what God holds me responsible for and what he doesn't hold me responsible for. I'm supposed to present the gospel And I'm supposed to live a godly life in front of my children. I'm supposed to speak about these things all the days of my life. I'm supposed to point them to the truth whenever I can. What I'm not supposed to do is believe for them. Their response to the gospel and godly instruction is just that, their response. It's not on me. And brother or sister who has done everything you can to point your wandering child to the gospel and they've not responded, it's not on you. Your faithfulness as a parent is based on you pointing your children to Christ, not whether they ever look to Christ. So I must depend on the Lord's ability and not despair at my inability. Moreover, my approach to being an example of a life surrendered to God will take on a higher significance. Do your children see you actively fighting sin in your life and repenting to God and even to them when you fail? Do they see you reading his word and being in prayer? Do they know that worshiping him and serving him alongside other believers in the local church is not optional but indispensable? Do they see the fruit of the spirit or the works of the flesh in your life? Husband, do they see you loving your wife as Christ loves the church? Wife, do they see you joyfully submitting to your husband out of reverence for Jesus? Older believers, can the younger, young believers around you, regardless of whether they're related to you or not, can those younger believers look up to you and learn what a life surrendered to Jesus looks like? Because remember, if you're a believer with other believers who are younger than you, around you, then you are an example to them. And everything I've said thus far applies to you as as well. Brothers and sisters, the do as I say, not as I do type of parenting has no place in the Christian home or in the faith family of the local church. And then finally, our approach to discipline will also change. Apart from these commands, outward compliance is all that matters. It doesn't matter if my son harbors hate in his heart for his sister as long as he doesn't hit her anymore. I don't concern myself with the disrespect of my daughter's eye roll as long as she does what I'm asking. Scripture calls us to more. In light of these commands, I must take the more purposeful, time-consuming step of trying to apply the gospel when disciplining my children. And so I'm asking hard questions about what my children wanted in their moments of defiance, and I'm using the word to show them what God says about this or that reaction that they've had. I'm not being harsh or out of control because which of any of my other neighbors would ever listen to the gospel from me if I were to act the same way in their presence? We tend to act differently when we're trying to lead people to Jesus, which leads me to ask what I'm really trying to do when disciplining my children if I'm acting different than I would if I were trying to lead them to Christ. And lastly, By keeping the Lord before me, I'm reminded of the patience he's had with my repeated failures, my obstinate attitude, and my selfish complaints. And therefore, I'm not shocked by those things in my children. 
And I strive to deal with them in the same way God's dealt with them in me. Do you see how these commands lift parenting way beyond the goals of good kids, college scholarships, and empty nests? It's bigger than all of that. It has to be bigger than that in our hearts, in our homes, if we're going to honor God in our parenting. Let us flee such a limited and short-sighted view of parenting. Because it's not only God using you to work in your child's heart, he's using your child to work in your heart. He's exposing impatience, selfishness, laziness, pride, and idolatry, not only in them, but also in you. And painfully, we have to admit that through parenting, he does that quite well. But here's the final beautiful truth about these commandments. The one who spoke them is also the one who's kept them on your behalf. Beyond even parenting, have you in every aspect of your life, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Take heart, dear sinner. Take heart, weary parent. You haven't, but Jesus has. And the wonder of the gospel is this, the penalty for your sins and failures has been paid at the cross by the Son of God who obeyed the Father perfectly in your place. And risen from the grave, Jesus offers to you and all who confess their sin and trust in him, he offers to you his righteousness and his abounding mercy and grace, and even his strength to keep on striving with an assurance, with an assurance of God's favor over and upon your life. And so as you confess your sin to God, and perhaps even confess your sin to your children, receive the promise of God's never-ending grace working in you and through you to accomplish his good purpose in your life and their lives, no matter how old you are or how old they are. Brothers and sisters, these times are challenging and all the more so with children. Nothing can wear you down physically like a screaming baby. And nothing can sap your soul like a wayward young adult or even an older adult child. But God's grace is sufficient. We must believe that enough to do things his way. Where we've sinned and fallen short, let us run to our heavenly father who joyfully forgives us. And then let us strive by his power and might at work in us to move forward in loving obedience. In him, there is hope and in him, there is instruction. What is the greatest command of parenting? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. May we be doers of the word and not only hearers. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning to pray for the parents who have been a part of this message and listened to it. 
Father, for those that are weary, for those that have regrets, for those who are overburdened and done, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak encouragement and life into their hearts and their soul. Father, I pray that they would run to you as their heavenly Father, knowing that you gladly and joyfully receive them that you forgive them for where they have fallen short. And Father, you understand where they are struggling. And you promise to give them strength and energy to do things your way. Empower them by your Holy Spirit to take that next step. Father, I pray for those who have heard this message and they've been challenged. I pray Lord, that they would, they would depend upon you, not try to take control of things, not try to do this in their own power, but really hearing this message and the message of your word, they would, they would cling to you by depending on you and calling out to you in prayer. Father, that you would lead them by your word, teaching them what it means to love you with all their heart, soul, and mind, and what it means to love their children as, as themselves, their neighbor as themselves. Father, I pray that there would be conversations across uh, this community. I pray that needed confessions uh, would happen, needed forgiveness would be granted. And I pray that there would be a reawakening of gospel-centered parenting, not only at Liberty, but beyond Liberty's walls throughout this community and, and Father, stretching far beyond. We need you. We need to be examples for those that are younger than us, whether we're related to them or not. We need hearts that are fully given over to love for you and love for others. But that only comes about through your spirit working in us. So we pray, we, we surrender all of these things to you. And we pray that you would do your good work in us. And Father, if there's anybody that has heard this message and they do not know of your great love for them, I pray that you would prick their hearts. I pray that they would turn from their sin. They would confess it to you knowing that you are eager to forgive I pray that they would trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, wholeheartedly giving themselves over, surrendering to him and find salvation and great hope. Father, do your good work in and through your people and beyond for your fame and your glory to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Liberty family, it is certainly different preaching and not seeing all of you right here. But I pray that God speaks to you even so by the power of his word, through the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And I long and we long for that day when we are all here together once more. If you have any questions or want information about resources, 
um, pertaining to this message, I want to invite you to email our senior pastor, Tim Cox, at tcox at lbcchelsea.com. And I uh, know we'll help you out with uh, whatever you need. So thank you again for joining us this morning. May God bless you as you continue in 